2: Ferguson, Missouri, used to be a sundown town. An African-American seen on the street after dark could be arrested, or worse. For a while, it was of interest mostly to geographers as a striking example of the resegregation of America's inner suburbs. Ferguson lies just to the north of the city of St. Louis, and flipped from majority white to majority black in a generation In 2014, it became world-famous as the place where Barack Obama's hope for a post-racial America was dashed. In August that year, the president was on holiday in Martha's Vineyard as Ferguson erupted in rioting after the death of Michael Brown, an 18-year-old African-American man. In November, demonstrators took to the streets again when a grand jury decided not to indict a white police officer named Darren Wilson in the case. A rolling news split-screen image showed Barack Obama urging peaceful protest next to live footage of an angry mob rolling over a police car. It exposed the gap between the symbolism of his election and the reality of race in America. Ferguson gave rise to a new generation of racial justice activists as millions adopted the hashtag Black Lives Matter. Now St. Louis is getting renewed attention as the epicenter of a spike in crime across America's big cities. And there's a new president who'd rather talk about something else. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Predo, The Economist's US editor. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, Why are so many murders unsolved? Big city homicide rates have spiked during the pandemic. St. Louis has the highest murder rate in America, and nearly two-thirds go unsolved. The long-term trend across the country has seen the murder rate decline since the 1990s, but so have clearance rates. What's the effect on citizens and policing when so many cases are left cold? In this episode, we'll hear the story of one woman caught up in this everyday tragedy and ask how policing and racial equity might improve from here. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, the US Digital Editor. Charlotte, what's going on in New York?
1: Well, New York is on the eve of reopening. The city and state are taking steps to try to return the city to normal, and we'll see whether that seems wise or foolhardy, but we're definitely moving full steam in that direction.
3: John, how about you? What's going on in your neck of the woods? I am one week away from being fully vaccinated, the weather has turned beautiful, and I am looking forward to a summer spent outside with people. And occasionally even inside. I think we can probably do that now. Sometimes inside. I'm really looking forward to the inside bit. For the last little while
2: in the UK, we've only been allowed to hang out with people outside, and it's really cold. And so I can't wait to rediscover the joys of socializing with central heating. But John, you haven't been stuck at home all this time because you've recently made a reporting trip to St. Louis, and this episode of the podcast, which is going to be a little different from our usual ones, is drawn from
3: material you gathered on that reporting trip. Why did you go and what were you doing there? I went to St. Louis to report a story about its high murder rate. Its murder rate is, is has been the highest in America for the past couple of years. Its clearance rate was also low as it is in other big cities. And I was curious about that confluence and what it looked like in practice and what it looks like to the people who are who are living through it. So I wanted to write a sort of portrait of the city itself from the from the ground up. But just to be clear, that clearance rate means the share of murders that are solved by police officers that's right, a homicide is considered cleared when someone is arrested and charged. Homicides can also be cleared through what are called exceptional means, which means that the suspect has died or has committed a crime in another jurisdiction and is incarcerated for that. But in general, it means that someone has been arrested and charged. And in St. Louis, the clearance rate is around 36%. For the most recent year, we have data. That means more or less two in every three murders go unsolved. And I wanted to know why and what that looks like and feels like to people who lived through it. And so I ended up speaking with a range of people I spoke with, activists, I spoke with a retired homicide supervisor, and most affectingly, I spoke to women whose family members had been killed. And I wanted you to hear from one woman in particular whose story I found exceptionally moving. She ran a gang abatement center in North St. Louis and then lost her son back in 2008. And his case is one of those that remains unsolved. And I just, I found her story incredibly moving and I found her exceptionally thoughtful and resilient. Okay, can I start, tell me your name and and where you're from in St. Louis. Okay, all right.
0: My name is Sharon Williams and um, I grew up here in St. Louis, Missouri.
3: And I'm looking around your apartment right now and I'm seeing pictures of a young man in a pirate's cap his books on the table. Uh,
0: Tell me who that is. Uh, That is my oldest son. His name is William Michael Rayford. Um, He was a known in our neighborhood and by our friends and families by the name Mikey. Mikey was murdered on June 8th, 2008, about two blocks from the gang abatement center that I ran for um, the neighborhood. Um, I went to work, <clears throat> was getting ready to pick up my son from be- the baseball game, baseball practice down the street from where I was doing part-time work at the library. And I got a call um, and said, um, please hurry, uh, pick the kids up and meet me at, at your daughter's house. And I went to my daughter's house and my oldest daughter ran down the steps and um, she said, Mama, um, Mikey's friend just called and said that he got shot and they think he's dead. So um, we got to the scene, and of course, there were a lot of people in the neighborhood. I grew up in the neighborhood. My center, the one that I ran, was down the street. So a lot of the people that were in the crowd knew me. A lot of the kids knew me. Mm -hmm. And um, the police officers that were there knew me because I worked with them um, to keep—they were with the gang units. They would try to keep the kids from getting in trouble. They would send them to the center, you know, to do things with. And um, I saw the sheet up. Um, One of the officers grabbed me that knew me and said you can't go back. I'm not gonna let you go back there And so I wasn't able to see my son But I know that 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 he was on the ground because somebody said he's on the ground Mm -hmm. Um, And I was told that as he was walking someone said as he was walking down the street Euclid um, There was a guy that he knew that was on the porch standing on his porch Mm -hmm. And so he didn't want to have a confrontation with him And so he tried to duck off through the alley But as he turned, one guy ran, chased him around the back through the alley Mm -hmm. and was firing shots at him. One shot caught him in the back and one shot caught him in the back of the head Mm -hmm. and he fell. And um, the neighbor that I went to said, when I went to the door, I heard all these bullets and I saw three guys standing over him, just firing shots into the ground. Mm -hmm. So um, he got shot 14 times. Um the one that really disturbs me is the one that um went through his went through his I guess it went through his jaw. He was on the ground and came out on the other side. At the time that my son had been murdered, I had already attended 45 funerals of young people that I knew um, in the city of St. Louis and uh, didn't think that my son would be the forty-six. <laughs> this was the neighborhood that I grew up in. I knew this neighborhood. I knew the people in the neighborhood. I was never afraid in the neighborhood. I became afraid. My son was an artist. He um, was very intelligent. Mm -hmm. Um, He painted all the murals and things in in the place in there, in the center. Um, He had a good rapport with the kids in the center. You know, he played games with them and things like that, you know. Um, In fact, all four of my kids were very helpful for me in the center. My mother and father came in and helped. The people in the neighborhood helped and did things for us. I fed the kids. I bought... Clothing, prom dresses, all kinds of stuff for the kids in the neighborhood. And um, to have this happen to my son by the kids, the very kids in the neighborhood who I had been feeding and clothing was very disheartening for me. And my my heart shut down.
2: Well, John, that was very powerful, and we'll be hearing some more from Sharon in a minute. But before we do, can you explain to us why St. Louis has become such a violent city?
3: Well, the answer to that is complex, and you know you could ask that about a number of cities. But I just want to dispel a slight misconception. When you think about St. Louis, which has an enormously high murder rate, or Chicago, which has I think, the highest number of murders of any American city. It's not that the cities themselves are violent across the entire city. It's that there are certain pockets of the city which have seen, you know, deindustrialization, jobs go away, substandard schools, not many opportunities for young people, especially young men. And so those neighborhoods, endemic violence sets in and creates a cycle that's really very hard to break you have on top of that a long standing and you know as far as i'm concerned for people i spoke to in st louis a well founded mistrust of police right one of the best books written about the subject of policing in an american neighborhood is ghetto side by jill leovi and she writes very well about the phenomenon of simultaneous over and under policing in these neighborhoods and so what that means is people in these neighborhoods see police roll through and often arrest people for quality-of-life crimes, public drinking, loitering, things that are really quite victimless, but then have trouble solving homicides. And the attitude becomes, you have time to arrest people for having a beer in front of their house, but you don't know who killed my son. And so that makes it hard. That sort of sours relations between the community and police. It makes it hard for witnesses to come forth. In addition, witnesses are often intimidated because there's not much money to protect them, meaning that if they go to the police and offer information, they then have to return to the neighborhood where the perpetrators live. That's a deterrent from people coming forward as well. And so what you have in St. Louis, as well as in other places, South Side of Chicago, Baltimore, New Orleans, are these neighborhoods in which endemic violence has set in and creates that dynamic that's very, very hard to break out of.
1: Can you talk about whether this is a continuation of a long-running trend in St. Louis or whether there's something new that happened in particular last year. So there was this, as you know better than I do, there was this huge decline in crime from the mid-'90s really through for the next um, 25 years. And then murder rates picked up last year. In the first three months of this year, there's data from nearly 40 cities showing that murders are up 18% compared with the same period last year, there's been a big increase in violent crime. So how is that connected to what you saw in St. Louis?
3: I think there are two theories about the spike in crime last year. One of them is that there's been what's called a Ferguson effect, which is that when there are protests over police brutality, when police behavior becomes more scrutinized then police will tend to pull back. And we have seen that, for instance, in Baltimore, where there were protests following the death of Freddie Gray in, I think, 2014. The murder rate rose, and it hasn't really come down since then. So that's one theory, that there has been a sort of depolicing effect, that after the widespread protests following the murder of George Floyd, police became more reluctant to do their jobs in the way that they had been doing them. The other theory is that there is something related to the pandemic and policing, and that seems to me the more immediately plausible one, although I don't want to dismiss the idea that anti-police protests lead to police being more hesitant about doing their jobs, but the pandemic theory is that you had police departments that were stretched because officers got sick and were quarantined, and that social distancing practices made it harder for them to do their jobs in the usual way, harder for them to run up on people. And so it could also be that there was some combination of those two, right? I know this to be true. In a number of cities, you had officers who might have been investigators ordinarily, but who were detailed to cover protest activities, which meant that you had fewer resources to investigate crimes. So it could have been an interplay between the two of them. I think we'll see over the next couple of years, as the pandemic, we hope, recedes. If the murder rate goes back down, then I think that's pretty strong evidence that it was a pandemic-related spike. If that doesn't happen, if the murder rate stays high, although, again, lower than it was in the 90s, then criminologists will have to think harder about whether there has been some aspect of police practice that has been scrutinized in a way that has led the police to pull back in a way that has facilitated an increase in the number of murders.
2: All right, thank you both. We'll hear a bit more from Sharon Williams in a moment. But first, the regular reminder, if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, then you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash As well as John's piece on St. Louis, this week's paper includes a special report on digital currencies that describes an imminent shift in how money works that's as momentous as the leap to metallic coins or payment cards. Economist.com slash is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode.
0: My greatest fear was something happening to my other son, who was now about 13 or 14 and getting into that age group. Um, and so we didn't live in the city. You know, we resided out in the county where I thought we were, he was more safer out there. And uh, it was okay for a while, um, but he began to have issues uh, related to the death of his, uh, his brother. Yeah. And so a lot of my time was spent trying to find role models like I had done for my oldest son to keep my youngest son from going down that same path. So I started an organization called Save Our Children from the Street. We attended marches here in St. Louis. We attended marches up in Washington, D.C. for mothers. We were out in Ferguson when that occurred. I was actually living uh, in Ferguson. My son at the time there, my youngest son, played at the park all the time with Mike Brown and, you know, all the kids in the neighborhood. And one day, Officer Darren Wilson and brought my son to my house in handcuffs him and his white friend I saw the lights flashing outside my bedroom window I'm like what's going on and so I went to the door and he's there and they're in the back of the car he says um, look um, these two in the back here I told everybody to clear the park out they were walking too slow so I got Wesley in and I'm I'm on his head because I told him like every black parent in this city has to tell your young son. Do what the police tell you to do. Don't talk back. Don't make any sudden moves. Wait till you get to me before anything happens. He said, I did nothing. He said, we were walking. I didn't even bounce the ball I was carrying. He said, my phone fell. I turned to look to see where it was. And that's when he jumped out the car and grabbed us, threw us down, and put us in handcuffs. Do I jump in my car, run to the police department, and make a complaint? It would be, I would create a problem for my son so that he would continue to be harassed by this guy. Making Making a complaint would continue to get him harassed by the police. And so I ended up sending him off to military school for a year. So when the Ferguson event happened where they read the verdict, my son had been home from break on school and I told him, Do not go down there. He went and um, I couldn't find him the next day. I'm going, what's going on? Where is he at? You know, I'm calling my other daughters. What's going on? Where is he at? And um, I called Ferguson Police Office, uh, Station. They said, check with St. Ann. Call St. Anne. St. Ann said, oh yeah, we got him in custody. And I said, well, he's 17. She said, oh, he's 17? She said, oh, OK, well, Mom, you can, uh, we're going to release him. Just go ahead and um, come out and pick him up. I couldn't get, leave work at the time, so I sent my sister and my mother. When they got there, his face was all beat in. Uh, he had braces. The braces had come through the bottom of his lip, and so they took him to the hospital. My other sister, Theta, she was so upset. You know, she she wants to get in the press face. She wants to make things hurt. She wants to have it justice served. Yeah. You know, and sometimes trying to get justice doesn't work for your benefit. And a lot of times, I would feel guilty because I didn't pursue the case with my son, my other son. Um, I didn't go after the guys who did. I knew exactly who they were. Didn't go after them like that because I had other kids and other family to think about. When people say snitches get ditches, it's real. These things happen. Well, the people who killed my son lived two two doors down the street. My purpose in having my group for the mothers was to tell them that we know what you're going through and I understand why you wouldn't pursue the matter because nobody talks.
3: Why does nobody talk?
0: Fear. I live in this neighborhood. I work in this neighborhood. My kids have to go to school here. I know the person. We know the perpetrators. We can't just say it.
2: John, how do you go about breaking this circle? Because... It sounds like from Sharon Williams' point of view, she's not getting a lot of service from the police, um, to put it mildly. I mean, her youngest son is getting arrested for failing to walk out of a park quickly enough because he dropped his phone and handcuffed for that. And then from the police's point of view, on the other side of this, members of the community are not coming forward with evidence in these homicide cases, which contributes to the police force's very low clearance rate, and to detectives being overworked. I mean, you have a statistic in your piece this week that best practice on a murder squad is for a detective to have about five murder cases to solve a year. In St. Louis, it's not unusual for detectives to have up to 19 to solve, which feels like an impossible task. So how do
3: you break this circle? One thing that a number of women I spoke to did is started their own charities. So Sharon Williams, as you heard, started a project that brings families, that brings victims in with detectives who are working their cold cases just to get updates on what's happening. I spoke to a woman named Maria Miller, who lost two brothers and a son in a six-month period and became an anti-gun violence activist. Um, Sharon Williams' sister a person. Her son went missing and was later found dead. She started a charity to raise awareness of of missing children. So that's one thing that women who've been let down by the system have done, is they've raised their own voices and they've put in their own time to raise awareness of these problems that, that the police, by some rights, should be solving.
1: One question I have is about strategy and allocation of resources, because in St. Louis, it seems like what you have is over-policing of some acts that in some instances aren't even crimes, and under-policing of really serious issues. And the result is this buildup of mistrust, as you describe in your story. And I'm wondering if you could explain what happened to the broken windows theory of policing, which was popular in the 1990s and credited with some of the decline that you saw across the country in crime that began in the 1990s, which was basically go after petty offenses, and the result is a broader decline in violent crime. So if you arrest people for jumping turnstiles, that has an impact on um, a city's broader crime rate. Has that been discredited? How does that fit in with what you observed in St. Louis?
3: It has been somewhat discredited because it has led to mass incarceration, right? It might make some sense in a period of high crime, if you were a police officer observing someone who you think who you are pretty sure is involved in serious crimes to jack him up for jumping a turnstile or jaywalking or something like that but it makes no sense at all to just jack someone up for jumping a turnstile or jaywalking in the absence of any suspicion of more serious crime on the other hand i don't think anyone would advocate including people who live in 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 these neighborhoods beset by endemic crime would advocate letting all low level offenses slide all the time. So it is an extremely delicate balance. Police have an extremely hard job. But I think that certainly Darren Wilson, what Sharon describes him doing, I think that police who do things like that do not fully appreciate the extent to which those actions make it harder for them to do their more important job of keeping people alive, of protecting public safety, of protecting people from the most serious crimes. I spoke when I was in St. Louis with an FBI agent who is a, you know, obviously a federal police officer, but who works with local police departments, who was very explicit. He said the failure to solve violent crime invalidates everything else we do. And so a policing strategy should be set up around the question of what do we have to do to solve more homicides, and by solving them, deter more homicides. And if that means maybe taking a softer approach at first, we can try that. There's an approach that a criminologist named David Kennedy came up with called focus deterrence, which is that the police go out and observe people, perhaps dealing drugs, committing crimes, committing things that people could be arrested for, but instead of arresting them, they call them in with community leaders and parents, pastors, and say, look, we have all this evidence that you've done things that we could arrest you for. We don't want to do that. We want to put you on the right path. So here are some job training programs that we can hook you up with. You go on the straight and narrow. You won't hear from us again. But if you keep doing the things you're doing, we're going to have to bring you in. Those sorts of things work. Instead of judging a police department on its efficacy by the number of arrests they make, judge it on a broader public safety metric. And you have programs like that that help police keep the neighborhood safe without earning the enmity and distrust of the people in those neighborhoods. John, one of the things I learned from your piece this week is that even though the
2: murder rate in the country as a whole is lower than it was 20 years ago, so there's been this spike recently, but it hasn't brought the murder rate back up to where it was in the 80s and early 90s when it was really, really high. So if you take a longer term view, the murder rate is down. And yet, the homicide clearance rate is also down. And that's counterintuitive, because you would have thought if there are fewer murders in America it might be easier to solve the murders that there are. So how has that happened? How do those two things, which would seem not to fit together, how do they, in fact, go
3: together? Well, this, I spoke to a criminologist in St. Louis, at the University of Minnesota, St. Louis, named Rick Rosenfeld. His explanation was that the share of murders comprised by domestic and family killings has declined markedly. Those murders are often not that difficult to solve. Often the perpetrator will be there when police get there. Those crimes have gone away and those crimes have reduced as a share of total murders. What has increased the share of total murders are the number of killings involving gang and drug activity in which everybody involved is reluctant to talk to the police for their own reasons. Those are quite difficult to solve. So what you've seen is that as the number of murders total has gone down, the number of murders that are inherently difficult to solve, that take a lot of work, that take the sort of community building that certainly a lot of people in St. Louis say is completely absent, those murders are much more common as a share of total murders. Okay, thank you both. We'll talk a bit more about why so many murders go unsolved
2: in just a moment.
0: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's just sad to see that in this day and age, all the dirty grit that goes on within the city, the county, the police department the authorities that are supposed to protect you, the people you should be able to go to and to have your case maybe get to one level and then just stop because somebody doesn't want it to go that far. They don't want you rocking the boat, changing the way that they do things. We'll get a black mayor, Tashara Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, I fear for her. I fear for her. We need more people who look like us that live in this community to work for the police department. But they won't do
3: it. The people who live here don't want to work for the police. They don't want to work for the police department. Because of that history of bad relations. Because
0: of the history of the bad relations, for one. The second, because the police department has two different unions. Why is there one for black people and one for white people? Still, still, in 2021, why is that? The detectives are overworked. Nobody in the neighborhood is talking. And you you just, you can't get a fair shake in this city. We can't seem to find justice for those who need the justice. Today, when the George Floyd, it's not the George Floyd, it's police chauvin's trial is going on. I'm sitting here thinking about all the different injustices, you know, and all the families here that don't get to be out there like George Floyd's family. Those are the people that I I, I represent. Those people who don't get a voice, who don't know where to go, who can't turn turn to anybody, who live in fear, who live with this trauma of losing a loved one and not having anything happen to anyone. Nobody held accountable for it. And you see it on Facebook. You know, you see it in the papers, you see it in vigils, you go in the corners and you see balloons and teddy bears and shoes and crosses and things like that where people have been killed. And this is not the first year. This is not the 10th year. It's 20 plus years of this going on, 20 plus years. And I always have mothers who come out who say, it hasn't happened to my son or my daughter yet, but how do I keep it from
1: happening?
2: John just before we get into the implications of all this for national politics can I just check that I heard Sharon write, is there a separate police union for black officers and white officers in St
3: Louis yes yes it's it it shocked me too to hear that but yes the St Louis police force which is majority white you have the St Louis Police Officers Association which is a majority white police union which is headed by a man named Jeff Rorda who has gotten to hot water for a number of times for incendiary anti-Obama posts for a, let's delicately call it racially tinged Facebook post about about Tishara Jones, who's the current mayor of St. Louis. And then you have the Ethical Society of Police, um, which is, I think, 97% African American. My entree into St. Louis, into this story, into into Sharon Williams and Maria Miller was from a woman named Heather Taylor who was a homicide supervisor in St. Louis. She's now retired, um, but she was very active in the Ethical Society of Police. So you do have, unbelievably, in 2021, two separate police unions in effect in St. Louis.
1: There's a lot of what I think a listener hears in Sharon's explanations and, in, in, and a reader learns in reading your story that just seems so obviously nonsensical that this is a situation that can't possibly be allowed to persist. But when you think about the reform movement for policing that are underway with some people subscribing to the Defund the Police call to action, um, others suggesting different types of reforms, is there anything? are there any changes underway that you think would actually address some of the problems that are so evident in St. Louis or elsewhere?
3: I mean, one reform story that I found quite compelling uh, concerns the Newark Police Department, uh, Newark, New Jersey. I was embedded with them a couple of years ago. And in 2020, for the first time in a very, very long time, no one on the Newark Police Department fired a shot. And the city of Newark did not spend any money to settle police brutality lawsuits. So what happened was they hired a lot more officers who, as Sharon Williams said, look like us, right? Look like the people in the city. And they also required every use of force, however small, any a police officer puts his hands on someone, it has to be reported and a supervisor has to review it. And when you do that, you see which officers have a pattern of using excessive force and you move them into positions where they don't have the opportunity to do that. They don't have the opportunity to hurt people, which in turn hurts police community relations. So I think that sort of reform, which is very granular, which requires review, which requires reporting... Um those sorts of reforms are really promising. As far as defunding the police go, I mean, John Pritto has been in Minneapolis more recently than I have. Uh I was there last summer a couple of months after George Floyd was murdered, and I just found very little support in high crime neighborhoods there for defunding the police. What people tended to want is more responsive police, better trained police, more ethical police, police that don't, you know, harass or kill people, but not less police.
2: Yeah, I'd second that. I was also looking at some general social survey data recently, which says pretty clearly that African Americans, a greater proportion of African Americans say they're afraid to walk in their neighborhood at night uh, than, than white Americans. So I think that also helps to explain why the appetite for defund the police is pretty low in a lot of African American communities. John, there's something here that I'm puzzling over. There are two to oversimplify a bit, there are two really big things going on in American policing at the moment. One is everything that flows from the murder of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin and the attempts to reform policing in America, which is a long-running story we've been writing about, you've been writing about for you know the best part of 10 years, maybe more, and that's gained new impetus. And that's broadly about making police departments more aware of race racism, more careful with the use of force in particular. And then there's this other thing going on, which is where Charlotte began earlier, which is in the last couple of years, the violent crime rate in uh, big American cities has ticked up and the murder rate has ticked up. Now, I would really like to believe that the solution to those two problems in policing is the same. But I'm sure if you talk to a lot of police officers, they'd say, Well, you know the murder rate's high, there's a violent crime epidemic in American cities. We need to be left free to do our jobs in the way that we see fit. And we don't need a lot of small l liberal reformers coming and telling us what to do because if they do that, you know this violent crime is going to get even worse and it's going to get out of control, and the people it's going to hurt most, are the residents where the crime rates are high already. So so what's your answer to that? Do you think these two things go together or do you think the solutions to them are separate or different?
3: I mean, I understand that sentiment from the police. Policing is a really, really hard job. It is a hard, dangerous, necessary job that involves split-second judgments that can have literally life or death consequences. On the other hand, the answer can't be just leave us alone, right? We would never tolerate banks saying, look, we know finance, nobody else knows finance, don't regulate us. Every sector is regulated. The question is, how is it regulated? And in this case, I think what we've seen, you know, is that departments that commit to a really thorough rethink of their of their practices and policies, often driven by a federal consent decree, end up coming out, the better for it. It's a really difficult process, but we saw that in Newark, as I just mentioned. We've seen that in Los Angeles and Seattle. Departments there went through a consent decree. Um, I think we will see that in Minneapolis. We will see that in Louisville it's really hard to be scrutinized from the outside there's no question if we had people looking over our shoulders as to how we did job, our jobs as journalists and asking us sort of at every step to rethink what we're doing especially people who have never worked as journalists we would find that difficult and annoying on the other hand it might be useful and it's certainly in the case of policing i think the the sort of reflection and reworking of practices rethinking of old habits is really, really useful and leads to better departments, safer cities, better relations between police and the policed.
1: One thing that I'm struck by in reading both your coverage and a story by our colleague Alexandra Switch-Bass on open carry gun laws, which essentially let you carry a gun without a permit in a growing number of states, is that you have from different parts of America's electorate a very warped development of what American justice might look like. So in the case of open carry laws, part of the reason why these are gaining in popularity is that people feel like they should be leading the public safety agenda. In Tennessee, that was explicitly part of the reason for passing this new law that allows people to carry a gun without a permit, that the governor said it's core to a strong public safety agenda. And so you have untrained citizens rather than presumably a trained police department uh, out there trying to defend themselves or trying to defend the broader uh, public in in a strange way among some conservatives. And then as you hear in St. Louis, you have people who just fundamentally don't trust the police department. The police department seems fundamentally unable to deal with the main problem at hand. So you see this breakdown happening Within the broader sphere of public safety that results in in particularly strange version of how justice is carried out, I mean, you could argue perhaps that this is a fundamentally American way of dealing with public safety, given our history and the history of vigilante justice throughout America's history. But it doesn't seem like a particularly sensible evolution.
3: No, and that conversation also leads to things like you remember in St. Louis. Last year, at the McCloskeys, that couple who came out of their mansion and pointed guns at protesters and became heroes on the right because they were somehow standing up for public safety, even though they were under no threat. So I think the idea that a strong public safety regimen requires armed, untrained citizens is just bonkers.
2: Yes, if that were the case, then St. Louis presumably would be pretty peaceful. Yeah, it would be the safest city in America.
1: It seems also that there's a coordination problem, that there are different actors that are not explicitly involved in a police department, but who nonetheless have a huge impact on a city's crime rates. So coordination from the police to the FBI, to prosecutors in a given area, to those providing mental health services, those who are doing job training programs. I mean, it's a whole ecosystem of people who need to be coordinated around a single goal. And it seems that part of the issue may be funding, but there's also a coordination and organization problem to make sure that that funding is properly allocated across that broader universe of people.
3: Yeah, there's something a criminologist, I think it was Philip Atiba Goff, who's a criminologist at Yale, that he told me when I was researching my book on police tech, I was talking to him about predictive policing, which is a They're they're computer programs that take in a lot of crime data and present a map that tells police which areas are at risk of increased crime on this particular day. What he said is when you have a map of crime, you also have a map of need. And so police have become sort of society's risk absorbers. But really, an area at heightened risk of crime is an area that, as you say, needs more job training, needs more mental health services. And so the more we learn about crime, as you say, the greater role there is for that sort of coordination and the greater ability there is to make that sort of coordination effective to target not just police at high crime areas, but also social services.
2: Another point you make in the piece is there's a chronic lack of money for witness protection in St. Louis, and that has an effect on the murder clearance rate.
3: Yeah, that's something that Kim Gardner, who is the circuit attorney, the chief prosecutor for St. Louis said, that they just don't have enough money to protect people who might come forward to help them, if not move out of St. Louis, that at least go somewhere else for a little while. I mean, as Sharon said, nobody's going to come forward when the people who they're coming forward to talk about live two doors down and there's no one there to protect them. That's an unreasonable expectation for anybody. One other thing I'd like to mention at the end of our show is. I would just like to say thank you, a really heartfelt thank you to Sharon Williams for telling me her story, but also to the other women I met who told me their stories, to Maria Miller, to Theta Person, to Jamala Rogers, to Sergeant Heather Taylor, and to Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner, all of whom sat down with me. All of them helped me understand St. Louis a lot better. All of them gave me a tremendous amount of time and insight, and I'm I'm very grateful to them all.
2: Yes, and thanks from Charlotte and from me too. I feel that we've been a little bit down on St. Louis in this episode, so it's important to point out that it's a fine city with many good things going for it, including its famous stainless steel arch. Symbolising the gateway to the West, it was designed by Finnish-American architect Eero Saarinen and completed in 1965. The Economist reviewed another major work of Saarinen's a couple of years earlier. This noble design for the jet age featured a revolutionary mobile airport lounge, thanks to which the traveller need only walk 150 feet at most to get from his seat in the aircraft to his transport to the city. Which futuristic airport did Saarinen design?
1: The TWA terminal. At JFK. That's an easy one, though. I mean... Is
3: it? Wait, no, the mobile the mobile lounges are at uh, Dulles in D.C. Didn't he design Dulles?
1: Oh, no! Am I wrong? Ugh!
2: He did design Dulles.
1: Ah, uh, I was gloating.
2: He did both. You can both have no, a point. No, but for that. I
1: think you're referring to Dulles because there aren't mobile lounges. I think at TWA, and I am ashamed and dismayed.
3: Yeah, after you after you get off a sweaty, cramped airplane, you get onto a sweaty, cramped bus.
1: Those buses are the Those worst. Those buses
2: at Dulles, the elevated They're buses, awful. are the weirdest yeah. things. Saarinen apparently thought Dulles Airport was his best work, and it is very beautiful as airports go. Which Midwestern city links Saarinen, the modernist architect, with former Vice President Mike Pence?
1: I mean, Indianapolis, but I don't actually know.
2: Uh, Columbus, Indiana.
1: Columbus? What?
2: It is Columbus, Indiana, Mike Pence's birthplace, Columbus, is also home to the greatest collection of modernist masterpieces in small-town America. Saarinen designed a modernist house, a bank, and a church in Columbus. He collaborated on the design for a second church in the city with his father, Eliel. Eliel was a key figure in bringing modernist design from Europe to the Midwest. His most celebrated creation? A spherical t-urn.
1: I learned so much from this show. I don't contribute any knowledge, but I certainly learn a lot from these quizzes.
3: That's untrue. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well thank you john thank you charlotte thanks john thank you thanks also to Nico rofast and to john shields for producing the podcast please leave us a rating and a review if you like it senator amy klobuchar is anne McElvoy's guest on the economist asks podcast this week she's talking about donald trump's facebook ban and about regulating big tech you can get in touch with us on email, radio at is the address. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.